MailChimp presents. Ever heard of a customer? You know, it's when marketers group all their customers, regardless of their different behaviors, into one big mess. But with MailChimp, you can use real-time behavior data to personalize emails for every customer based on their browsing and buying behavior, turning your customers into customers. Intuit MailChimp, the number one email marketing and automations brand. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide numbers of customers in 2021 and 2022. Availability of features and functionality vary by plan, which are subject to change. Hey, I'm Paul Jarvis, and you're listening to Call Paul. I'm the co-founder of Fathom Analytics, which is like Google Analytics, but privacy-focused and easy to use. I've also run a bunch of small businesses over the last 20-plus years. In this season of Call Paul, we're talking to small business owners who are in it not just for financial reasons, but for a place to act on their values and make a real difference in their industry. As small business owners, we actually need a bit of ego to get started. To see a market or an industry or a group who aren't being served and then believe that, hey, I can be the one to change things here. And that ego to start can then propel our idea into existence. It's really easy to consider that somebody else knows more than you or knows how to do something better. So if you can find a way to uh, authorize yourself, like deputize yourself to investigate, that's kind of helped me. That's Anong Beam, the founder of Beam Paints, located in Michigan First Nation on Manitoulin Island in Northern Ontario, Canada. The paints themselves are a thoughtful exploration of a product that both pays tribute by looking backwards to tradition, while simultaneously thinking forward to sustainability. Beam is the daughter of award-winning Indigenous artist Carl Beam and feminist artist Anne Beam. She's that rare kind of entrepreneur who has built a business around her deep reservoirs of inspiration. I have a really absolute love affair with color. I have synesthesia or something like that where it's really, really experiential for me. And when I was a little kid, like some of my earliest memories are uh, these really strong color experiences. So like I was standing in a driveway with my mom. The driveway is super black like pavement and it's springtime and we're looking straight up she's holding my hand and that color of all the sunlight coming through spring maple it was really like glowing green it was just so so beautiful and I asked her because I was learning words at that time like what what's this color and she said it was chartreuse and I was just like wow chartreuse that's just amazing I kept standing there. She ended up leaving and I'm just by myself there. And after she left, I went over to this tree and at the bottom, it had those little maple saplings and I ate it because I wanted to know what chartreuse, like the color tasted like to be in the color. It's very uh, satisfying. 
so when I make paint, I like to try to deliver some of that feeling of like this very concentrated color. It's going to really expand as you're using it and be it, its most personable self. Wow. So how you see colors is so vivid and creative. It's obvious that you're also an artist, but you're also in the business of color. So do you think of yourself as a business owner too? Yeah, I definitely think of myself as a business owner. I have really strong interests in economics and commerce. And I really believe that commerce and business, it's a strong part of the mechanism of change in society. And I feel really amazed that I could start this business here. I'm in the middle of a First Nation. I don't know how many people live here. Maybe 800 people. It's pretty small. We're definitely not a manufacturing hub. Let's talk about that for a minute because your, your product exists very much because of the where you are physically in the world because of what you harvest and saps and honey and that. Can you, I guess, for people who aren't familiar, kind of describe where you are in the world? So right here, Manitoulin Island is the world's largest freshwater island. And I'm in Chiging First Nation, which is in the middle of the island. So directly to my southeast and southwest are two spring-fed lakes, internal lakes. And then to the north is uh, the bay of the North Channel, West Bay. And then that's how we're inside Lake Huron. So there's a lot of fresh water. I kind of want to give listeners a sense of the physical space of being paints and kind of like what's the workshop like and then how that affects the work that you do because it's a family business it's kind of really shows out in the the workspace and we started pre-pandemic i was starting it as a business uh in a side bay of my boyfriend's garage and i worked in that and painted and made paint and as the business grew and we were making more paint and shipping more paint, my business grew into uh, two studio buildings. One was my mom's art studio because she was a painter. And the other one was my dad's painting studio. They each had their own separate space. So over the past couple of years, we've been growing into those two spaces and maintaining a certain level of that work at the initial garage. So there's three main activities that happen and they each happen in their own zone. Uh, the paint gets made in my dad's studio, which is like a wet, messy studio. <laughs> and then it goes over to the sawmill garage. And over there, that's where all the wooden pieces are made out of offcuts paint goes into containers and holders there and then once it's ready and dry it comes over here to my mom's studio which is really high ceiling kind of airy really uh it's really beautiful place and this is where we have people who are packing and receiving orders and shipping out paints our customer base has been pretty global right from the beginning and that's something that was interesting to us. We were immediately working with people from other countries. And we're now doing about half of our business in Canada, but it had to grow. 
Yeah, I mean, typically it starts the other way where it like starts local and then kind of grows out from there. Yeah, it's strange too because it's a very local product and it's from local like tradition and local materials, but um, we've slowly been kind of introducing ourselves to the neighbors, so to speak. Not everybody listening to this show will understand the process that you go through to, to make your products, right? Because you don't just sell paints, you harvest pigments. Can you walk us through kind of what that process looks like? I like to say that we're, uh, we're like a fusion of traditional pigment techniques and then contemporary and other cultural approaches to color. So our main focus is to make great paint. So we really take from all pigment traditions to do that. But it did start here from learning how to make pigment and paint from my dad in a traditional Nishinaabe or Ojibwe way. So that's from local rocks. We still use natural rock from Manitoulin and uh, in all of our colors, but we also want to make really vivid, light, fast, and non-toxic colors. So we take synthetics as well, and we base them in other natural pigments. So they're, they're kind of like a hybrid. And in that way, you get the best of both worlds. It's a very physical paint, but it's also has the some of the punch that synthetic colors can bring. So we make paint right from raw ingredients, and we really in-house every step of the process in our, our business. We have raw ingredients, sap and tree sap, and we source or bring in everything we need for that. We produce the paint. We produce the containers that, we, that hold the paint, all the different kinds that that entails. And then we also do all of our fulfillment and shipping in-house. So that means that we have such an end-to-end -end ownership of the product that we can really control to very fine detail and how it appears to the customer, whether it's in our retail setting or if they're buying directly from us. And it's given us a lot of room to creatively, you know, especially with the pandemic, deal with uh, shortages or different supply chain issues were never really too uh, disruptive to us because we could adapt. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like beam paints exist not just because you wanted to sell paints, but because you wanted to sell paints made in a specific way and packaged in a specific way. Like, Can you talk about how beam differs from just like any other company that sells paints to consumers. What makes uh, Beam Paints distinctive in the marketplace is that, to my knowledge, we're the first plastic-free manufacturer of art supplies. That's pretty big. We don't use it in the paint, and we don't use it in the actual production or shipping of the paint. And actually, just this past week, we've filed a patent and this year, we're going to be rolling out production of Nucrylic. And it's a, <laughs> it's a plant-based acrylic. It's made out of hemp and limestone. And it is patent pending. Wow. And we're really thrilled about it. It's going to be a tube paint. The same inherent technology in that paint is also going to be in uh, textile ink. So, you know, you wear T-shirts. All the T-shirts in the world 
that have images. Those images are screened on using plastisol or it's a plastic ink. And we've developed a plant-based ink that's performance identical to wow. that. Yeah, so we are super thrilled to be bringing those out this year. And then the last iteration, which maybe will be next year, is uh, that that same inherent technology can produce house paint. So my house, the interior is all plant-based house paint. It's, it looks just like regular house paint, but it's just made out of hemp. Nice. I found that the paints that are labeled as no VOC still are really stinky. Yeah. And I feel like there's something wrong, but it feels like it's better, but it doesn't. Yeah. And you know, that's really what inspired me to keep going on this. Like it's been some few years, three years really, that I've been trying to get this recipe together. And, you know, in sourcing out different ingredients for it, I was able to talk with distributors who serve the coatings industry. And they would send me things and I bought different things to try. And I asked them right up front, because this is going to be non-toxic. They said, yeah, okay, we'll send you this ingredient. And I got it and it shows up at the shop with this huge warning on it that it's toxic to aquatic environments. And it's not only lightly toxic, it will persist in an aquatic environment, which is like persist is what you don't want to hear, right? That doesn't sound non-toxic. <laughs> no, the cartoon warning label was a fish with X eyes and a, and a crooked dead tree. And I was like, this is really... Jeez. Oh, yeah, we live on a lightweight farm. So we produce a lot of food for ourselves and also for our employees. We share out beef boxes and pork and things like that from animals we raise here. And to look out the window from where we're making paint and see ducks and chickens and cows going down to a pond that's down from the shop, it just really brings home, no, you don't understand. Like, I cannot use that. I'm not going to. Our process, you can't help but be aware of how attached we are to the environment directly. And then when you imagine that expanding out, we are all attached to our environment in that same way. It's just very visible for me. And it underscores why we make those choices. How do you not feel jaded that other companies use non-toxic or like they give, I guess, lip service or greenwashing to the products that they have when you on your end and your company are going above and beyond to make sure your product stands up to the language that's used to describe the fact that it's non-toxic and, and safe. Yeah, that's a, that's a surprise to me, really, because I think I, I am a really trusting person by nature. And I believed already that there probably wasn't a need for what I was making. And then it was really through the process of making it and developing this recipe for paint that I realized how so many of the other companies that are doing these kind of greenwashed uh, paints for home use are really just accepting what the chemical companies are saying is available. And I believe that that's because at a fundamental level, companies and corporations are not making the shift off of fossil fuels to green economy. And 
I don't say that in hateful way. We're incorporated. I'm a corporation. But we're making choices and understanding that doing this, when I choose to use hemp oil in the manufacture of paint, that huge volume of oil, instead of supporting petrochemical corporations, it supports farmers in Alberta. And, you know, hemp is such an amazing material because it's very low impact. It doesn't require a lot of additional inputs. Uh, as far as I understand the farming end of it. But yeah, I, I feel that it's not something to be jaded about, but more that this is, we're living in a time of incredible opportunity because people are demanding solutions for longstanding problems. And surprisingly, you know, there, there's a lot of room for that right now. I guess now that I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about my own perception. I guess I didn't understand the connection to land until I moved from like living in a glass box in the in like Vancouver or Toronto to where I live now, which is like acres of land on an island as well, but on, on the West Coast. Where we live impacts how we see the world. And it seems like the physical space that you and, and Beam and your family occupy shapes the values that you have that you then instill into your product right like and i think that there's there's opportunity there for other people to kind of see that and it's not even like you need to do this it's just like if you just experience this and see what you think and if that changes how you feel about certain things yeah no but i i i agree with that i feel like people's contact with the natural world can be so limited and so removed i've had people send thank you cards like we get a lot a lot of mail here uh, back and there's some people who've never seen a birch tree in real life they've just seen it in movies and they get something that's made out of birch from us and we leave it pretty raw so they can see the bark that kind of looks like paper yeah so that really blew my mind the thinking about people not knowing what it, that kind of tree looks like <laughs> yeah yeah, I mean, like before I moved to the West Coast, I understood how big a tree could be. And then like, there's one down the road from us that part of the reason why we bought the property that we did because that tree was so nice. And it's probably four meters. I see it every day. It boggles my mind. That's amazing. Well, understanding trees and the environment as a reciprocal part, not just a, a stage. But I think being around animals really does that too. You know, I mentioned that we had some cows and things. I think to understand, to see a field grow hay, and then to see these giant animals eat hay and become, you know, I don't get in trouble with vegans, but become hamburger <laughs> and then go on to sustain families, it just really puts the whole process front and center at the regenerative power of the land is quite remarkable. But that's what's so concerning about persistent chemicals and how easy it is to get them. Nobody really asks, how are you cleaning up after that? Or why are you using that? when there are other alternatives. You have so many different alternatives these days. Is it difficult to compete with other companies who don't share those values? Like, do you feel like you're a singular entity that cares to the level and detail that you do? That's an interesting question. I don't know how it's going to be in the future with the other paints, like the house paint industry. Starting with art supplies, this made sense to me that artists themselves are such a sensitive group of people. 
you're talking about by and large a very conscientious group of people who are very eco-conscious conscious of their impacts like they're they're very conscientious people and the supplies that serve them are not taking those sensitivities into account. Also, a big part of that was my parents. My father passed away pretty early when I was pretty young too. And I, when he was ill, he had uh, testing and he had to go through chelation therapy and he had uh, heavy metals in his system. He had a lot. And there's a lot of heavy metals in art supplies and certain colors and pigments. And I really don't feel that at least when I went to art school, we weren't really educated in how to watch out for those ingredients, how to be limit exposure and how sensitivities over time could develop. And then my mother as well with developing Alzheimer's. There's no actual concrete evidence that that's what caused those two outcomes for them. But I do know that they used paints that did have lead and artist paints certain ones that have heavy metals or lead aren't particularly labeled in a way that makes that obvious. So that's something to be aware of as an artist. Hey, I wanted to pause for a quick break. If you're enjoying this season of Call Paul, you'll love a small business story from our friends at Courier, a magazine about working better and living smarter. When Akusa Afriye Kumi returned to Ghana in 2012 after studying fashion design in London, she had no business plan or grand vision for her own label. All she knew was that she wanted to make handbags using raffia, a palm primarily found in Madagascar. Since launching her brand AAKS two years later, she's become a young icon of African design and has helped to put Ghanaian artisanship on the global fashion map. For the full story, head to couriermedia.com. And if you want more stories like this, you can sign up for their weekly newsletter at couriermedia.com email. Nice. Can you talk about where you were at when you started the business? What led you in that exact moment to think like, okay, I see a problem with an industry I'm familiar with, what led you to go from like, I see a problem here to like, I'm raising my hand, I'm going to be the one to solve it, I'm going to create my own company to take on this issue and and to tackle it. I've just kind of given it to myself that I've thought, honestly, probably nobody has thought about paint quite as much as you in this exact way because I do really think about it a lot I'm making it I paint with it I'm an artist that's all I'm really doing but what kind of led me to do that actually was a massive reorganization of my personal life I was in a really really bad relationship I had a really kind of a toxic situation that was It was dangerous for myself and my kids. And so we left that situation, which meant I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have a studio. I had two kids. I had a lot of debt that I was stuck with. And I got a full-time job at a museum nearby. It was the Ojibwe Cultural Center. I remembered it from when I was a kid. And it really centered me and gave me some stability in my life that I really needed. That's really when I started the business because I knew that 
as much as this job was great and stabilizing, it was for other people and it may not be for me forever. And there was still a level of uncertainty in it. Whereas I thought if I have my own business, then I will be in charge of my own uncertainty <laughs> instead of someone else being in charge of it. I kept the business going while I was working full-time for the first few years. And it was really hard to quit the job because I loved it. I finally did let, let go and go full-time on the business. And it really has just kept growing since then. Yeah, and it's hard because you're jumping from a thing you know to a thing that has questions and you can plan for it. But until you're running a business, you don't know what it takes to run a business. Like, it's just that's just the nature uh, of how entrepreneurship works. Yeah. And you didn't take any funding, I don't think either. Like you didn't take any investment or anything. I wouldn't say no funding. We did some, I would say like outlier stuff. It was non-traditional funding. We, it was very modest. I think it was like $4,000 that we never took uh, investment. So I'm still the sole shareholder of the corporation. I think that part of why things are the way they are for us that I really enjoy is that every decision that I made along the way had to pay for itself with the power of the decision. So if it didn't really work, I never got too far in a hole anywhere because the the decision had to move to the next decision. And I think if you take out a loan or if you accept free money somewhere that doesn't have it doesn't have a cost on you, it's too easy to make decisions that aren't really rooted in a positive outcome. And then I think you can find yourself kind of dumped in a puddle and not really understanding how you got there. So I really know everything that's worked and not worked because I felt it when it didn't work and we did not do that again. I definitely have been wrong so many times. I know I've been wrong way more times than I've been right. But as soon as we're wrong and something doesn't work, we change and we adjust and say, okay, and you just don't take it as a, a terrible setback you just keep moving on yeah i think there's something to be said for only answering to your employees and your customers instead of adding a, th a third group of people whose values might not align with the other two groups right that was something that came up actually when we were talking earlier yesterday about what happens in the shop we haven't raised our prices in in this entire time through all this inflation everything because we as a team Everybody is doing their part. It is a family business. So there are a lot of people connected relations and longtime employees. They're all doing different things. And as we're going through processes, they're determining like how they can do them better or something comes up. And I feel like more and more, I just really listen to everybody and then constantly kind of fine tuning that, that there's their refining processes and streamlining to the degree that we have been able to avoid increases in raw cost and streamline processes. So it just has been balancing out so far. So we have passed that on to the customer for not raising prices, which has been pretty cool. Is there any other industries that you draw from to see like how they're doing certain things outside of like paints and painting and, and on art? You know, I think it's more not so much an industry, but 
that I'm thinking more historically in terms of what people did before plastic, specifically in our culture, which is the Nishnabe or indigenous cultures worldwide, really. Plastic is so recent in the timeline of humans and human endeavor. We were doing so many interesting, unique things before. So a lot of the ways that we approach packaging comes from looking at more traditional uh, things. Even the way we wrap little paints is slightly inspired by uh, birch bark containers and folding and the way we handle material. Like we would soak paper in water, which is how people would prepare birch bark, soaking it in water and then to reform it. So I really enjoy that, being inspired by the ancestors and where people before us how do you take care of yourself right or like how do you keep having fun with work when running a small business is hard oh it is because there are really some awkward points in there like some people had to be fired and it was me that had to do that and that's really tough but i think at the end of the day the atmosphere on a team, it has to be really convivial and everyone has to feel very secure and relaxed and as happy as you can be while you're doing work. And I really pay attention to the general environment. If it isn't that way, and this can happen for so many reasons uh, beyond anybody's real control, if it just isn't a fit, that just isn't. And I think that's one of the biggest things I learned uh, from my boyfriend, actually, because he runs a business is, well, it's just not working out. <laughs> and I think as a lady, I don't know, uh, I always wanted to overcomplicate it and like figure it out and apologize like 80 million times. And but I think just like, well, it wasn't working out, you know, being very brief about it and moving on has really helpful there. So aside from that. I have a super clean lifestyle because I'm really, really busy and I just don't have any time. So I don't drink or smoke. And now I make sure that uh, I exercise every every day, every other day. I do 20 minutes of really intense kind of sprinting or jogging, making time for that and having really good sleep and exercise and eating well i just have to do all that or i, I don't i can't get it all done that and accepting not getting it all done that was really hard yeah i'm in that place with my business where it is now coming to terms with the fact that we can't finish anything by the end of the day but we can finish some things and then get back at them the next day. Yeah. And I'm the same as well. Like, I don't think enough entrepreneurs realize the connection between the life that they have outside of work. How we are outside of work 100% bleeds into how we are in the work that we're doing. Definitely. And especially if your work demands a lot of you, like mentally, the exercise and diet is really so, and sleep are just so integral. Nice. If all goes according to plan, where do you see the company in the future, like in five years or 10 years? We have really grown slowly at our own pace. That being said, we've doubled every year for the past three years. That's pretty good growth rate. 
yeah, it's been really intense. And the experience of that has just been like, oh, you can't really fully relax because nothing is ever the same. Things are constantly changing. I was thinking about new entrepreneurs or me years ago. And it's funny to think about like, well, if things go well, if you're starting a business, you have to think about actually like a success contingency plan. Like what will happen if you get what you want? <laughs> what does that look like? Pursuing a patent, it has been one of the most exciting things that I've done ever. <laughs> and to finally get that like, hey, it's pending, it's unique and being assessed and all, all of that. I am really excited to to work on that now because it felt like we had to keep that all secret for so long. I think you're, you're well suited for what you do. And I think the figuring out the should it be me who solves this problem, it should be you. Because yeah, the things that you're doing and the way that you're approaching these problems, it's really good. It gives, it gives me hope for the way things can look in the future that are different, but just more sustainable and better for people, planet, animals, water, everything. It's really easy to consider that somebody else knows more than you or knows how to do something better. So if you can find a way to authorize yourself, like deputize yourself to investigate, that's kind of helped me. What stands out about Anong and how she runs Bean Paints is that her confidence is the quiet, questioning kind. Her mindset is deeply rooted in having a beginner's mind, regardless of the wisdom she's gained over the years. She saw a market that could use innovation and then rightfully thought that she could be that innovator. Because she maintains control of all the decisions from end to end, she is able to be relentlessly thoughtful about her process and impact, and every minute detail of her business benefits from that thoughtfulness, like using offcuts of wood as packaging instead of plastic. As business owners, it's obviously of great benefit to be knowledgeable about our industry and products. But at the same time, no one person can know everything about a complex subject. That's why it's important, as Anong said, to deputize ourselves to investigate. Maybe that's what it takes to disrupt or revolutionize an industry. The ability and smarts to know when our ego can be helpful and when it can be harmful. Next week, I'm chatting with the CEO and co-founder of an organization who helps survivors of human trafficking break into a new profession. I hope you'll join us. Call Paul is a MailChimp original podcast. The show is made possible with the help of the whole amazing team, Julie Douglas, Ruth Eddy, Sasha Brown, Tierra Darnell, Kaida Jesus, and Zoe Culkin. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player so you can check out all of our other episodes and seasons. Oh, and if you want more awesome podcasts, go to MailChimp.com slash presents.